Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Oprah talks about living your best life, and we're about to examine at least one of the things that may pull you back from living that best life and from being the most creative, productive person you could be. But first, let's begin on a day when Nisha Charya's life was thrown for a loop. I mean, it was a crazy natural experiment. It was 2010, and Acharya had been appointed by President Barack Obama to be the Director of Innovation and Entrepreneurship and an advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. It was a big, exciting, important job. And then everything went dark, or at least his inbox did. I mean, essentially, right after they got started, they got their office up and running in D.C., a computer virus hit their network. And for security reasons, the Department of Homeland Security took all their computers. They said, we have to go, whatever, study these things or disinfect these things. Oh, and by the way, because of regulation, security regulations, you can't use your own computer. So you can't use your personal email to communicate with each other. So take a minute here. You're in D.C. You're working for the president. You're coordinating meetings. You're thinking big thoughts, figuring out how to navigate partnerships between agencies. You are making things happen, but you have no email. And this disaster, it drags on for weeks. The hard thing was the White House is very email communication focused. So they were a bit out of the loop on, okay, who's meeting with who? When is the get togethers happening? Because that was all happening on email. And they found that to be very difficult. But, and you can kind of hear it coming, right? But Acharya had time to think. This is a story that Cal Newport tells in his book, A World Without Email. He's a professor of computer science at Georgetown University who's become famous over the last several years for his obsession with productivity and the disaster that digital stuff can cause for that productivity. So back to the story that unfolded a decade ago. Acharya, who's pretty new in this job as director of innovation and entrepreneurship for President Obama, well, he finds, okay... Scheduling meetings is a disaster, but actually being without email, which might sound like being thrown into the ocean with nothing to hold on to, it has some major upsides. Because he wasn't tending this inbox all the time, he started to actually go to the offices of the various different government agencies that they were supposed to be working with and just spend hours with these stakeholders just talking through all right, what's going on? What do you need? What's really the problems? And in this six weeks, they actually came up with all of the major ideas on which basically his uh, entire tenure in Washington put into action. And when this conversation, when this was over, right, I was talking to him about this years later. And I said, you know, the stuff you said was such a pain. You probably could have fixed that. Let's say email was back. You probably could have stayed off email by just having, let's say you hired someone who just helped coordinate meetings with the White House or something like this and still preserve the white space. And the very idea that we don't necessarily have to be plugged into this all the time, it was as if the thought had never occurred. There was this nice moment of silence, which I think captures the foundation for my whole book, which is we think that this is fundamental and we haven't stopped to step back and say, does it even make sense that we're working this way? Newport says it most definitely does not make sense. He argues that for many of us, our work is centered around email. And I mean, email is right there at the center. It's taken over. You'll hear him talk about context shifting, moving from what you're really doing over to email and then back again, and doing that over and over and over. Email, Newport says, has a mind of its own. 
It distracts from real work, it makes us unhappy, and a bit of a revolution may be called for. Acharya, who really wanted his email back initially, concluded that in D.C., no one gives themselves the space to think. He said, this is a quote, It's all neurotic, looking at your phone, checking email. It hurts ingenuity. Which is ironic for the guy in charge of innovation for the federal government. But, says Newport, that's exactly the point. We're all being affected by email. No one is immune. And I spend a lot of time trying to understand the actual neuroscience behind this. But but the short summary is, if you have to constantly tend these online conversations, it means you have to constantly context shift. You know, what's going on here? Back to my work. Right. What's going on here? Back to my work. And this context shifting is a cognitive disaster. It, it lowers our cognitive capacity. It also exhausts us. It makes us feel anxious. It makes us feel fatigued with our work. I mean, if you design from scratch, what is the worst possible way to do work with your brain? Forcing people to check an inbox once every six minutes would be very high up on your list. Um, let's just back up for a minute. When did email start to come into our lives, come into our work? I really enjoyed actually excavating this history because I didn't quite know what was going on. So here's what I found. You can go as late as the late 1980s and you will still see, for example, the New York Times business section putting the word email in quotation marks. You know, okay. it was uh, being described as this new technology that hadn't quite met its potential. You get to the early 1990s, it takes off. By 1995, it has become the killer app of the 90s. So commentators were pretty clear. The 80s were about the arrival of personal computers and spreadsheet softwares was the killer app. The 90s was about networks and email as the killer app. It was a half billion dollar a year business by 1994. By 2000, you begin to see the first complaints in the productivity literature, in business publications where people are already complaining about being overloaded. So when it came, it came fast. And the problems that came along with it they really entrenched very early on in its evolution. Um, you write that in 2005, people were sending and receiving like 50 emails a day, which just to step back for a minute, if you're comparing that to letters, I have never had a day in my entire life when I've gotten or sent 50 letters. But anyway, that was 2005. By 2011, it was closer to 100. By 2019, it had topped 125. Um, what do researchers find about how getting all these emails, which clearly seem to be on this glide path up, um, how does that change our, our days and how we conduct ourselves? Well, it's a significant hit on our productivity. And I think we vastly underestimate how much it degrades our ability to actually do knowledge work. That is to use our brain and knowledge in our brain to add information or value to information. We underestimate the degree to which that significantly degrades how much we can get things done. Constant context shifting is like poison to clear thinking. Our brains can't do it. We can't glance at an inbox full of messages, most of which we can't resolve in the moment, socially fraught, urgent, and then try to bring our attention back to writing a business strategy or writing computer code or trying to have a clear conversation with someone that we're managing. So it really is a, a terrible way to try to take a human brain and say, okay, we want you to alchemize value out of your thoughts. I even go so far as to hypothesize, and this is just a hypothesis, right? This is a very tricky economic uh, matter to untangle. I hypothesize that this shift to this increasingly hyperactive hive mind mode of working is why non-industrial productivity has really stagnated over the last decade or two. And in fact, I think we might have even seen a decline in our economy-wide 
productivity metrics, if not for the fact that we added these hidden second shifts early in the morning or late at night to try to make up for the work that we're not able to get done during the day. So I think it's a it's a crisis, not just an annoyance. So basically, the idea being like, email is like a ball and chain around our mind. Like we we're trying to get work done, but it's slowing us down a lot. And it's hard to drag it along with us. Yeah, I think the fact that we are just used to this notion that in many jobs today, the communication about work now takes up all of the working hours to the point where we actually do the work that we might have done during nine to five, 15 years ago. We do it at 7 a.m. or we do mm-hmm. it at 9 p.m. after the kids mm-hmm. go to bed. And we're just accepting this. But if you if you came in a time machine from 1980 to 2021 and you saw this, you would say, are you kidding me? This is crazy. Obviously, this has spiraled out of control. This can't possibly be the best way to bring a lot of people together to get things done with their minds. You've you've overwhelmed every hour of the workday with talking about work. Uh, There should be very loud alarm bells ringing, but just like the lobster that doesn't realize the temperature of the water in the pot is raising until they're being boiled. I think something similar has happened to us here. You talk about a really interesting experiment, 1927, a little bit before email, um, but uh, this guy named um, Arthur Gersild um, did an experiment that uh, ended up revealing something about the human mind that kind of speaks to what you're saying. Do you want to talk a little bit about that experiment? Yeah, he was one of the first people to actually measure quantitatively the cognitive cost of switching your attention between different targets. And so he did a very simple way, right? You would basically give the participants a pretty simple task to do. Like, let's go through the numbers from one to 10, but add seven to every number. And and, you know, let's go through and do that. And they would time how long you would do it. And then they would say something like, let's go through the alphabet backwards, right? And they would time how long it takes. And then they would say, interleave, do a number, alphabet, number, alphabet. And they saw that the performance on both really went down. So they hypothesized there must be some interference. So the switching back and forth between these two tasks slows down your performance on both. And this kicked off decades of work where people would very carefully measure how much different types of task and network switching slowed you down. We get to the modern era. Now we have modern neuroscience. We have imaging. We have uh, anatomical studies of the brain. We now have a much more complex storyline for what's going on here. We can actually look at network suppression and network amplification, really understand what's happening, what centers of the brain are involved. But that's a long 100-year trajectory of research that tells us it takes us time to switch our attention from A over to B. So do you think if people are listening to this and thinking like, yeah, I'm pretty good at checking email a bunch of times during the day and then going back to, I don't know, coding or writing that memo that I need to do or figuring out that, that you know way of appealing to a client or whatever – what would you say to them if they say, I'm, you know, like some people might not be good, but I am quite good? Well, no one is. And I think the, the problem is, is we got uh, diluted a little bit by this brief moment of multitasking mania. So basically, there was a period in the late 90s and early 2000s where there was a model that was really obviously terrible, which is I'm going to do multiple things literally at the same time. So I'm going to have my inbox open next to the thing I'm writing while I'm on the phone. Right. And that obviously did not work. And there's research in the early 2000s that that stated the obvious, which is like you can't have your email open at the same time that you're writing at the same time that you're on the phone. We can't do things literally simultaneously. And so everyone was very proud. I no longer multitask. But what they don't realize is that what they're doing instead is these quick checks of the inbox. 
and they feel like, look, I'm checking the inbox, but then closing it again. And I only look at it for 30 seconds because I'm waiting to hear back from my boss. We're having a back and forth about scheduling right, a meeting. Right. It's just 30 seconds. And then I close it again. It's great. I'm not multitasking. But what they don't realize is that there is a cost to that context switch that can be almost as bad. Just looking at that inbox, starting that neurological cascade of network switching, and then wrenching yourself away from that while it's still in progress to go back to your main thing, you have now significantly reduced your ability to actually do that main thing. And we feel this where we get exhausted and anxious with our work, and then we just find ourselves aimlessly checking emails by the time we get to two o'clock or whatever. And that's because we have completely tired out our brain doing something that it did not evolve to be able to do. Those quick checks are as poisonous as pure multitasking. We just don't realize that as much. I'll tell you even another piece of this, which is I often don't check my email when I'm reading books. You wrote a book. I closed my computer to be able to read it. I actually completely closed my computer because it's so interesting to me that if I don't clo physically close the thing and go to a different part of the room and read a book, then I will open it. But even when I do that, even if it's closed for 45 minutes at a time and I'm not checking email, I do have this nagging feeling that either people are waiting for me to answer an email or um, just that, I don't know, maybe something interesting has come in, something I really should be responding to. Even when it's a long time that I'm away from email, I still... I'm a little, there's something in me, I'm still a little concerned emails coming into my inbox. Well, you're not alone in that. I think the right way to think about it is there's two classes of major issues with email. Now, the first are these network switching productivity issues we've been talking about. But the second class that I get into is the way that this form of communication clashes with the way that our brain actually handles sociality. I mean, this was an unintentional consequence. But the having a, a, a inbox that's constantly collecting communication from people you know who have expectations for you is a very fraught reality for our deeply evolved social brains. Now, your, your frontal cortex can say, it's not urgent. We have norms at WGBH that says we don't have to respond within 24 hours. No one in there is expecting me to respond. There's no one who's literally mad with me. The rational part of your brain can tell you that all day long. There's a deeper paleolithic part of your brain that says, there's a tribe member tapping you on the shoulder. You're ignoring them. Next time there's a famine, they're not going to share the food and you're not going to pass on your genes. So we are like, we are, we are conflicting <laughs> with this. And you, can actually, Very deep. and you can actually measure this in the lab. They do these, these insidious experiments where they take someone, they're doing a lab experiment and they say, oh, we need to move your phone. It's interfering with the, the heart rate monitor we have on you. And they turn off the do not disturb and then they move it across the room. They do it surreptitiously and then they call that phone. And even though this person... They thought they had placed the phone in Do Not Disturb. So that means they were completely happy and comfortably rationally with the idea that I am not going to be using my phone during the next half hour. Hearing that there is communication sent all of their stress indicators, which were being measured for the experiment, sent them all off the chart. It doesn't matter what we tell ourselves about the reality of expectations. That is very stressful to know that there's a piling up of social obligations that at every moment you're ignoring is getting higher and that situation is getting more fraught. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Cal Newport. He's the author of several books about our digital lives, including Digital Minimalism and Deep Work. 
His newest book is A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. He's also an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University. Let's take a quick break here. We're going to be back in just a minute to talk more about how email has affected our productivity and creativity and how to get those things back. You can grab this whole segment by heading to Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe to the show and hear our conversations every week. From GBH and PRX, this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. So just to be clear, Cal Newport does not hate email. So email as a tool is fine. If I want to send information or a file to someone, I would rather use email than a fax machine, right? It's, it's a fine tool. But there's a problem, according to Newport, who is, by day, a computer science professor at Georgetown, but who's spent the last few years becoming increasingly well-known as a productivity guru. Someone who tells you how to get rid of all that junky, sugary, shiny digital stuff that's eating up your time. Stuff that, by the way, is preventing you from becoming the worker, the thinker, the creator that you could be. Indeed, in that list of junky digital stuff, email may be the single greatest offender. The number of messages in your inbox, that's also not a problem. If you subscribe to too many newsletters, that's an annoyance, but that's not really a problem. What's the thing that's really killing us? It's the fact that we've implicitly decided in so many knowledge work contexts that the main way we are going to collaborate on things is to have these asynchronous back and forth digital conversations. And so the hyperactive hive mind is a workflow. It says the main way we organize things is we just rock and roll on Slack, we rock and roll on email. I actually don't really care too much about the tool. The thing that's killer is that we're doing back and forth, unscheduled, unstructured messaging to figure things out. And now that's fine if there's one person you're doing this with, or you're in a team of three people and you're working on one thing. But when you scale this to, I have seven colleagues and nine vendors and six clients and seven other units in my building that need things from me, and all of these different stakeholders have their own back and forth unscheduled asynchronous conversation, it's that demand of I need to service ongoing back and forth conversations that is really killing us. Newport calls this phenomenon, and you heard him say it, the hyperactive hive mind. And it's an approach adopted by so many organizations, and the idea basically being that everybody is checking email or Slack or something like that almost incessantly, that it creates a situation in which it's hard to tell whether you're actually working or you're just talking about working. Either way, we're all living in the buzz of the hive, breathless for the next message to come our way. In 2016, a researcher at the University of California, Irvine, named Gloria Mark, a real pioneer in this field, well, she looked at the behavior of dozens of folks at a large company. On average, they checked email 77 times a day. Studies have found that workers peer into their inboxes every four to six minutes. Newport argues it is out of control, and it's costing us a lot money, big ideas, efficiency, time. If the hyperactive hive mind is how your organization mainly coordinates their work, you have a love relationship with your email in the sense of this is how my work gets done. And that reality is why it's so hard to try to fix this problem in the inbox, right? To tell people have better habits, you know, batch when you check emails, do email free Fridays. These things don't work if the way your actual company operates is this is how we coordinate. 
back and forth, right? So it does that for us. And and Slack, for example, is just like a, a slicker implementation of the hyperactive hive mind. That's what people like about it. But we also hate it because this constant interruption is a torturous way to try to get work done. And it makes us miserable because it clashes with our with our social circuit. So we're we're both dependent on the tool. And I think that's really crucial, right? You can't just say stop using email. Right. We're dependent on the tool. And yet we hate what that dependency is actually doing to us. Uh, you write about, uh, I thought this was really interesting, a part of many, many companies, um, the information technology department, the IT department, they're obviously really, really important. They keep your computers running. They keep whole systems running. And you argue in some ways, because they are such an important department, they figured out a long time ago that getting distracted all the time by emails is not the way to go. That's not how they're going to get your laptop fixed. Well, there's, there's a great example there. Because if the hyperactive hive mind is the problem, and we've established you're not going to fix this problem with your own inbox habits, because if that's how work actually gets done, you're in trouble. What's the solution? Well, the solution, and this is the big point of my book, is you have to replace that underlying hyperactive hive mind with something else. You have to put in place alternative processes for working together to get things done that does not generate lots of back and forth asynchronous unstructured messaging, right? So the IT departments went through this decades ago where they realized if, if the way we operated was just here's an email address and just, you know, let me know when you have issues and we'll go back and forth on email and you can bother me, like, how's it going? We'll try to figure it out. They realized we would never actually fix anything. All we would be doing is constantly serving people. Hey, what's happening to this? I'm having a problem right now. I'm really upset or whatever. So they invented an alternative workflow. They replaced the hyperactive hive mind with ticketing systems where your concern goes into a ticketing system. It gets a number ticket. The number ticket gets categorized in a system. As an IT worker, you, you work very sequentially now. You log into the system. You choose a ticket that's appropriate for you. You do nothing but work on that till a stopping point. You update the ticket. That update goes automatically back to the person who submitted it. And then you say, what's next? And what's crucial about that example is not that we should all be using ticketing systems. It's the broader point. They didn't say their reaction to the hyperactive hive mind was not, let's have faster inboxes. Let's get quicker at checking email. Let's have better norms around our email. They just replaced the entire underlying workflow and said, email is not how we actually do this. We have a system we think is going to respect our brain better. That's what we need in basically all aspects of knowledge work. Alternatives to the hyperactive hive mind that allow us to get work done in a way that doesn't make us miserable and doesn't sap us of our cognitive resources. So why in a company does IT operate in that way where you get a ticket because uh, you need your laptop fixed, um, but, you know, marketing or accounting or whatever doesn't operate that? If IT was like, this is not working, we're not getting any laptops fixed, we're not, we're not you know, fixing this server, we're not doing anything here, we need something different, why didn't everybody get something different? Yeah, it's interesting because there's these more technologically focused pockets in knowledge work who do re uh, reject a hive mind. I think an even bigger example is computer developers. Uh, computer developers that are running an agile project methodology like Scrum or Kanban, they're not sitting around in their inbox like, hey, what are you working on? What about this code? They have a task board. It's very clear exactly what needs to be done, who's working on what. In Kanban, they have very fixed work in progress limits. In fact, you should never have more than two things you're working on at a time. They have very synchronized meetings where, okay, what do you need? What are you working on? What do you do? Let's go. They work for hours at a time without any interaction. So there are alternatives. Why don't we see that in other areas of knowledge yeah. work? The two things that seem to be going on is, uh, one, it's easy and convenient. Right. The hyperactive hive mind is very easy and it's very convenient. All you have to do is pay for an email server. Everyone knows how to use email. You can just rock and roll. 
in the moment, it is much easier than figuring out more complicated processes that are more productive. And then two, and this is sort of one of these ideas I, I feel like I, I kind of broke the story on, you know, in this book is that we have this, this long history and knowledge work of autonomy when it comes to how we do and organize our own work. And I, I, I get into the whole history of where this comes from, but we have this long tradition and knowledge work that, hey, how you do your work is up to you. What we give you is clear objectives. And then you figure out how to get your work done. If you want to be more productive, you know, go buy a Cal Newport book or something like that and learn some productivity habits. In an environment where we leave these questions of how work is organized to the individuals, you're going to get stuck in whatever's easiest and most convenient in the moment. And that is the hyperactive hive mind. So if people are existing and it's this swarm of emails, which are kind of tormenting them, definitely slowing them down, why haven't CEOs said, you know what, even even like I don't care about your mental well-being. I don't care about your physical well-being. I do care, though, that I, I'm paying somebody $100,000 and I don't know, like three hours of their day, they're not even working. Or, you know, I don't know how much of their day people are not working. But um, I would think just as a bottom line thing, people would say, mm, we got to figure out a better system. Well, I think that's going to happen. I think it's actually starting to happen. This is the shift I'm seeing. Now, the, the amount of time it's taken is not that unusual. If you look at other intersections of technology and commerce, it takes a while before we figure out the right way to integrate technologies into the way we work. And we're being slowed down here because of that autonomy trap. I think that really held us back, this notion that it's inappropriate for management or for a team leader to think about how do we organize our work? How do we assign tasks? How do we keep track of who's doing what? How do we exchange information about it? We, we, we felt like that's inappropriate. We should leave it up to individuals. But I think the drain on productivity has become acute enough, especially amplified by the pandemic because remote work makes the hyperactive hive mind sure. even more hyperactive. So I think we're at a breaking point where, you know, I'm picking up from more and more both CEOs, but also investors are realizing that there are hundreds of billions of dollars of productivity on the table. So I think we're going to see a moment of punctuated equilibrium where one day we're all doing email and Slack all day. Four years later, that's going to be considered incredibly old fashioned. Uh, you write actually about a German company, a tech startup, I think, where the I think the person who set it up said, come in at eight in the morning and you can leave at one in the afternoon. But the email situation was totally different. They were really clear about what role email should play. Like when we email, when we have meetings, what we email about, they put into place, they put into place much more bespoke processes for how do we actually want to coordinate. And I think in there we see the solution. We can't think about tools. It's not, well, if we replace email with this Slack, we replace Slack with this. It's not a tool problem. And it's not a habit problem. It's not if we just batch, if we just uh, have better expectations. It's a process problem. We have to actually go through and say, this is what our, our team or company does. We do these seven processes. And let's think about each and say, how do we actually want to execute this process in a way that doesn't require us to keep checking channels? By reducing the pressure on the inbox in the first place, you solve the problem. And that's what I keep coming back to when I talk about this. I keep coming back to it in the book is we're not going to solve this problem in the inbox. We have to solve it in the underlying processes that is putting all that pressure in the inbox in the first place. Okay, let's pause here for one last break. I'm talking to Cal Newport. He's the author of the book, A World Without Email. When we come back, we're going to talk not just about waging war on your out-of-control inbox, but also about actually waging war. 
But before we go to break, let me tell you about a story we are working on. It's about work burnout. We would love to hear from you. Are you feeling burnt out? Has your office tried to help? What would you like them to do? Are you doing anything differently? You can send us an email, I know, ironic, with your thoughts, innovationhub at wgbh.org. That's innovationhub at wgbh.org. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the summer of 1939, the chief of staff of the U.S. Army retired. His replacement was sworn in on September 1st, 1939, which coincidentally was the day that Adolf Hitler invaded Poland. You, George Captain Marshall, having been appointed a major general in the regular army of the United States, you solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that you will bear true faith... By the time America entered World War II, George C. Marshall was about 60 years old. He had no experience actually being in the theater of war with troops that he was commanding, and he wasn't a shining star of military brilliance. He had ranked pretty much smack dab in the middle of his graduating class at the Virginia Military Institute. Bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that you take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that you will well and faithfully discharge the duties and office in which you are about to enter, so help you God. I do. But George C. Marshall had one thing in spades, the ability to concentrate. He may have been middling academically, but at VMI, he ranked number one in discipline. And that paid off. I mean, he was the guy in charge of the entire uh, American military forces during uh, their largest point in World War II. When he came in into that chief of staff role, uh, he significantly changed and streamlined the processes. Cal Newport is a professor of computer science at Georgetown who has spent years looking at productivity, creativity, and the time we too often waste. He's the author, most recently, of A World Without Email. I talked to him back in February. He says, I don't want everyone to be able to reach me directly. This is crazy the way this is set up. We have to uh, change who can report to who. I need to drastically cut down the number of people who have direct access to me. He had to actually have legislation passed in Congress because so many of these roles were appointed as political favors that he had to actually pass legislation using the pressure of the role to allow him to essentially move people or fire people uh, so that he could streamline. Here's how I actually want the communication to happen. Newport writes that Marshall was dealing with an incredibly complex managerial problem. One thing he had to do, and this was far from the only thing he had to do, was to expand the army from fewer than 200,000 people to about 8 million people in three years. But he refused to be drawn into the army's complex, buzzing, activity-filled structure. So instead, he insisted on zeroing in on each problem without distraction from anything else. The five-star general didn't even want people who came in to talk to him to salute because it just took up too much time. He had set processes for how decisions are made. You'd come in, you had to prepare a a document in advance, you'd present your case, you'd present your answer, he'd give you the feedback, you'd move out. He, He streamlined all of this so that he could focus on one thing at a time, 
make the best possible decision or be as useful as possible and then move on to the next. And I think what's really remarkable at George, uh, George Marshall is not only did he have the busiest management job probably in the history of management jobs, he'd go home at five every day. And so it just belies this notion that just because the way you have things set up now is that everyone could reach you at all points means that you can't change that, that there's not other ways that you could lead and manage teams. It doesn't require you to constantly be communicating. Marshall had experienced burnout years before, and he didn't feel like being on all the time was such a good idea. He needed space to pause and to reflect, and he was insistent about building that in. Many managers, even those who are not managing world wars, think that taking that sort of time would not just be overly indulgent, but impossible. Cal Newport reminds them of George Marshall, who may not have embraced being always on, but who embraced something Newport thinks is even more important. Focus. It's the magic bullet, right? And, and one of the points I try to make is, you know, whether you're, you're doing something that like canonically requires long focus, like you're writing a novel, or if you're a manager, which canonically we think about as being more reactive, or even if you're, let's say, a support staff or even like an administrative assistant that's, that's really reactive, we know that the best way to operate is sequentially. One thing at a time with your full attention before you move on to the next thing. That is the way we're supposed to operate. We cannot do one thing at a time while also checking communication channels. And I keep coming back to that point a lot is that that's what you should be striving for in these processes is this ability to do one thing at a time with your full 100% attention before moving on to the next. Now, whether you have to do a lot of things in the day and they're each short or you're just doing one thing and you're a novelist, the same rule applies. Full focus on what you're doing until you move on to the next thing. That is what's going to make us more uh, satisfied as humans. It's going to prevent us from burning out, and it's going to get us way more value out of our brain. Um, when I asked you about that German company that had people work just five hours a day because the idea was like five hours of real, real, real work and real focus and not this like getting distracted type of stuff. Um, how did that work? Did they did they find that they were at a competitive disadvantage? Did they, you know, what what happened? Well, things have been going great for the company. Now, I, what the, the CEO told me is that it was hard to put in place. And I think that's the important, and that's the important lesson, that the, the hive mind had been so ingrained that they actually had essentially a coach that would work with the employees to help them retrain how they work to not require all this back and forth communication. Uh, now, I thought that was really significant because, you know, they found that once they actually had really transitioned the whole culture to these more bespoke processes that were more less communicative, more focused, people are much happier. People love it. People were talking about how they've, they've taken up new hobbies. They're actually able to spend time with their kids. But it wasn't an easy transition. And I thought that was one of the more interesting things I learned talking to him after this transition happened is that this is not a let's throw some quick habits or hacks at it. Like you're fundamentally changing a culture. You have to change the way that you do work. If you can do it, there's huge advantage. But like any of these overhauls in the way we do work and any of the history of technology and commerce, usually there's some pain in making the change in the first place. So let's say you're talking to the leader of a company or a nonprofit and they think, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. We should make some changes um, in our organization what would be like the first specific steps to change, to, you know, to do, to implement? What would you say to them? Well, okay. So, I mean, a couple of things I suggest is that ideally probably the light, right level at which to make this transformation from hive mind towards processes is at the team 
level and it needs to be a collaborative process, right? So it needs to be, okay, we're a team that works together on doing client presentations for this ad agency. And that team needs to be empowered by the management to have this process oriented mindset. We don't want to do the hive mind. We don't want to do back and forth digital conversation to figure things out. Identify your processes, come up with what you think is better that's going to minimize those back and forth. We're here to support you, but the team has to figure it out and it has to figure it out with a mindset of we're not going to get this right at first. And so let's keep revisiting, let's keep experimenting, let's take some pride and look at what we figured out. You might even want to set up a culture of this team can with pride present their innovation to the other teams. Like we've, we, we've built this new, this new process that's really saved a lot of communication. I think that's the right, that's the right level to focus. Now, if you want a really concrete thing you can do in a week just to get wet people's appetites is mm. send down a decree that says no meetings will be scheduled via email. Like, okay, that's the one thing where the simplest change you can make is going to be uh, we're going to introduce some tool like Schedule Once or Calendly or whatever it requires so that there's no back and forth email exchanges to schedule meetings. That simple change, I think, gives people a really deep appreciation right off the bat of, oh, man, having to manage these back and forth is killer. And I feel so great when it's gone. So that's the appetite wetter, I think, is like, let's get rid of email based meeting scheduling. Let's say you're just somebody at a, and, and you're at a big company and like, you have no idea whether the uh, whether the uh, management are attuned to the discussion that we're having, um, but you do kind of recognize in yourself. Yeah, I do have anxiety about the email, about my inbox, and yeah, I do check every few minutes. Um, what's the first thing you can do if, like, you know, it's not really in your purview to like ban email? So list out your the processes you're involved in. And really start going through these and saying, what? just given what I can control, I can't control the people, just given what I can control, how can I reduce the amount of back and forth messaging required for each of these processes? And you would be surprised by how much leverage you actually have over these realities, right? There's, there's things you can do, even if other people aren't on board with it, that actually reduces a lot of the back and forth information. I mean, sometimes it's as easy as you're just kind of telling people like, yeah, okay, let's just do this. Like just send your draft to here. I'll check it by this time. Hit me in my Zoom office hours. If you have a question, I'll upload it next week. They're just happy that there's a plan. Like, great. I got it. You know, Cal, mm -hmm. let's go. They don't realize that you have just integrated them in a process that just got rid of seven or eight back and forth email messages. Mm. Repeat process after process after process. How can I, given what I can control, reduce the amount of back and forth messaging required to get this process done, to get this process done? You can get, what, 80% of the benefits probably if you do that carefully, even if no one else in the company knows what's going on, even if everyone else in the company hates Cal Newport, uh, you could still make your life a lot better. Um, you argue that uh, that a world without email is actually a forward, I mean, you I think many people think, well, that that's the world of the 1970s, but, but that it is actually the world of the future. Um, do you really believe that there will be so much of a shift uh, amongst, I guess, people in charge that in 10 years we may not rely on email to the degree we do now? I think it's it's inevitable. And, and, and to be clear, when I say a world without email, now that we've put some nuance on it, what I really mean is a world without the hyperactive hive mind workflow. Email is a protocol for delivering files and information. Sure, it's better than fax machines. That'll be around. But a world in which it's not the hyperactive hive mind, where you're not checking an inbox once every six minutes, where mm -hmm. you're not constantly doing back and forth communication, I think is inevitable. And the reason is, is the numbers. So if we look at the industrial sector in the 20th century, at the end of the 20th century, Peter Drucker looked back and said, 
this grew. Growth in this industry was 50x from 1900 to 1999, right? And it was because we got really serious about what's the right way to build things. Let's re-engineer processes. Let's try to rethink how we build things. 50x. He said that's all of the wealth on which the developed world was built in the 20th century came from that 50x increase in productivity. He said where we are right now in 1999 with knowledge work is where industrial work was in 1900. In other words, we haven't even started that serious systematic thinking about what's the right way to actually do this work. Even if it's a pain, even if it's not convenient, even if it takes experimentation, what's the right way to do this work? So if there's really 50x growth latent in the knowledge sector, if you know we could see something similar over the next 100 years, the pressure of that economic productivity is so heavy, there is just no way that we are going to stay stuck. Autonomy trap or not, convenience or not, we're not going to stay stuck checking an inbox once every six minutes. There's just too much potential pushing on how much we could become more productive. So yes, I think it's inevitable. There's no way we're going to look back in 10 years on the hyperactive hive mind and say, yeah, we got that figured out pretty well back then. Do you think that the pandemic um, has moved things at all? Uh, I, I mean, in some ways I could see it making the email situation worse because like there's no going down the hall for a lot of people to pop your head into somebody's office and say, hey, we should meet or let's let's talk about this in person instead of 15 emails. It might be just more straightforward if we have a back and forth about it. That's I've done that. This is not happening. Um, I, I don't know if you think that this episode, this you know year plus has moved the needle at all in email. Well, so I'm not sure. So, you know, I, I had largely finished writing this book before the pandemic started, but early in the pandemic, I was commissioned by The New Yorker to really look deep into this question. Okay, so if we're being forced unexpectedly into wide-scale remote work and knowledge work, what's that going to do to the future of work? And I, I really got into that in this article. And what I argued, and this was over the summer, so relatively early in the pandemic, is okay. that it's it's clear that it's clear that the shift to full remote work is making the hyperactive hive mind more hyperactive. Mm -hmm. And so it is amplifying all of the issues of the hive mind. It's also clear that the, the knowledge sector companies that have the, the easiest time with remote work are those that don't use the hive mind, that have very structured processes like software developers who largely, they, there's large remote software firms that they're completely used to working remotely because they have a more structured workflow than the hive mind. So it can adjust much better to that. And so my optimistic spin that summer, last summer, was maybe this will push us to finally get rid of the hive mind because we've raised the pain point so high that we can't ignore it. Looking at it now, uh, you know, six months later, I don't know yet. If it raised the pain, is it going to spark the changes? I haven't seen huge evidence that it's causing a rapid change. I think people are still in a hunker down mindset. We're all kind of suffering. Let's get through it. So I'll be very interested as we go through this relatively speaking, quiescent spring and summer as the vaccines and population immunity mm -hmm. takes the pressure off and people are going to actually kind of come out of a hunker down mode. I'm hoping it does lead to reflective change, but it could it could not. I mean, a year is not that long. So I'm on the fence nervously watching what's going to happen here. You, you write about uh, when people um, are able to set aside an hour, two, three, four hours of a day to really focus and not do anything else. Generally, those people are a lot happier Like, and, and I think wanted to stay at their jobs longer than people who didn't have that. 
Well, one study that showed that was pretty straightforward. It was hard charging management consultants. They're at Boston Consulting Group. And literally the, the change they made was called predictable time off. And it was, it was evenings, right? So this just shows you how much, how high practice the high bind here. It means mm -hmm. a week where you don't have to do email. Even that change you know, made people uh, not only much happier and much more willing to stay with the company, their self-reported effectiveness went up, right? And it seems paradoxical at first, like, well, if you're less accessible, if we can't reach you, then why would you be more effective? But now we know because, well, there's all these massive hits to your, to your productivity if you have to keep context shifting. So, uh, yeah, people are happier for sure and more effective when we, when we free them at least somewhat from the hive mind. But they, but they were also happier when they had time, like during the day, like during the workday, to do two hours of coding or two hours of like, you know, designing a building if they're an architect or whatever, where they could be sure it, it was blocked off in their calendar. Nobody would bother them. It, it, people, it does make people happier whenever we study this. Anecdotally, when you talk to people who have this set up, they seem much happier than people who don't. When I profile companies that have moved away from the hive mind, what you normally see is a rhythm in which there is a set number of, think of them as checkpoints in the day where interaction happens and coordination happens and decision mm -hmm. happens. And the rest of the day is just working on things. And it's the, the relief people feel <laughs> because a lot of these companies, they, they just get so overwhelmed. Like we're going to make this change. And if it puts it out of a business, we're going to go out of business, but we're done with the hive mind. The relief people report at, I just work for like for three hours. And then we have this check-in meeting and then, you know, everything's organized. We figure out what's next. And then I just work for another two or three hours. It is, you know, a tears of joy type situation when you talk to people <laughs> after this change. So finally, um, on a slightly different but kind of related topic, um, you and I have talked a couple of times before because you've written uh, various books about sort of reducing the digital presence in people's lives. Um, and, you know, I remember you saying to me uh, years ago that um, perhaps by the time, I think you said by the time your oldest child was old enough for a phone, the practice of giving phones to relatively young people might seem outdated. Do you remember saying that? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, however, I would say, and this may just be my experience, but when, when you go to any place that people gather, a park, an airport, a restaurant over the last few years, kids seem to be getting uh, devices younger. I, would, I, I, I wouldn't, I mean, that's what strikes me that they, instead of moving away from getting devices, I will see kids who are two with an iPad, um, I wonder what you're seeing and what you think's happening. Well, I separate two categories here. So I, I separate, let's call it passive screen consumption from interactive okay. screen consumption, right? So so with passive screen consumption, you know, we've evolved from uh, the TV in our living room that as kids, you're watching a lot of TV during the day and this was an issue. And the iPad, for example, is just like a way to bring the TV with you to other places that the keep the kid quiet in the grocery store. Right, right, right. Yeah. Doctor's office. Uh, yeah, and yeah. that that yeah. has its issues, um, but I'm not as worried about that. And maybe this because I'm a kid of the 80s who watched a lot of TV. <laughs> uh, what worries me more is this uh, interactive screen involvement that we see starting in the preteen years where you are interacting with other people through a tool like social media that has been engaged, the press neural buttons, it's been engaged for addictiveness. That's where I get really concerned, right? I think that's where we see the acute mm -hmm. problems when you begin to actually use things like uh, social media or some of these highly addictive interactive video games. And that's the thing I think that by the time my eight-year-old is 14, 
It is not going to be nearly as huge of a parental lift to say, no, of course, you're not going to get a smartphone uh, as it would be, let's say, a couple years ago. I think we're right in the middle of that transition. I've been working on uh, this topic recently. I've been working on an article about it. This transition is just starting to happen in the culture over the last couple of years. And I'm trying to hurry it on because I don't want to really? be the mean okay. parent. So so, so basically, I'm trying to start a cultural revolution <laughs> so that I don't have to you know, have a socially awkward interaction with my kids, I guess. <laughs> but you do think we're moving in that direction, not moving in the direction of like, maybe my 12-year-old, my 10-year-old, my 9-year-old should have uh, a phone. I think for sure. And that's a real difference. And there's typically about a 10-year experimental window on new technologies where we initially approach them with exuberance and there's a lot of experimentation. That's how our culture in general tries to figure out how do we want to integrate new innovations into our life? We're ending that 10-year honeymoon with smartphones now. We no longer just treat them with exuberance. I think the backlashes on social mm. media from all ends of the political spectrum over the last three or four years, for example, has really helped tarnish in people's minds the idea that this is just Steve Jobs' gift and it's fun and let's just like experiment with it. There's a ton of critical approaches happening now to these phones by just about everybody. And once we shift to this critical phase... We learn from that experimental phase, and then we say, okay, what do we want to do going forward? And I think that plan going forward is not going to involve giving a 12-year-old, you know, access to a TikTok account. Hmm. Cal Newport is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University. He's the author of A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. Cal, thanks so much for coming back. Well, thank you. It's always, uh, always my pleasure to chat. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, we are working on a story for the future about burnout. We'd love to hear what's going on with you. How has the pandemic affected burnout? What's your office trying to do about it? Maybe tell us what you're trying to do about it. Maybe emails involved. Cal Newport may not like this, but probably the best thing to do is actually email us. Innovationhub at WGBH.org. There's also Facebook and there's Twitter. We are at iHub radio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Abby Bagini. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. <laughs>